As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, again, uh, a delight to us, uh, really nourishment, food for our souls to um, hear the word of God and to think upon it. So I pray that as we listen to it read, that it's your voice that we hear, Holy Spirit, witness, please, to our spirits and with our spirit, that this is indeed the word of God. And may we hear it, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, which it is. And then please, I pray, help us to think upon it in a way that's true. Um, Holy Spirit, to your intention. And also then, please, work in us your grace uh, that we may grow in our gratefulness. And in our praise to you, God. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Ephesians and chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read these first 14 verses again. I think we have two more Sundays just on this, on this passage. But um, So bear with me, please, as I linger. So Ephesians and uh, chapter 1, please. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the truth, uh, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, it was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, this passage, as we've said, especially from verse 3 on, is, is, is a, a passage of rather unrestrained, if you will, a praise of this one Paul, who is an apostle. And a praise to God. And, and the reason that he's at this moment of praise is he's thinking about the blessings that we have through and in Christ and how they've come to us. And the apostle realizes that God's the one who should be thanked, praised for this. It's, it's, it's um, a point of blessing of God, if you will speak well of him, uh, because Paul realizes that it was a, it's a gift of God from first to last. 
that it began before the foundations of the world when he, we believers, were chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless. Paul knows himself. He knows he's not holy and blameless. For him to be holy and blameless must be a work of God. And he realizes that it is. And there he stands before God justified. Well, how did that happen? Well, it wasn't because of Paul. It was because of God, the Father, who chose him to receive all of the blessings that come through Christ, one of which is to be found holy and blameless in his sight. And then in love, it says he predestined all those chosen. He predestined them. They have a destiny. They're appointed for an end, which is to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And all this, he says, uh, according to the purpose of his will, not Paul's will, but God's will, the Father's will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in this one Jesus, who is the beloved, who is loved. And all this comes, he says, this blessing, because of the redemption, that is, a price has been paid. We sang about it this morning often and much. The price has been paid. Uh, he was redeemed. And when he speaks of this redemption, he means that a price has been paid to free him, to free him from the debt of sin, to free him from the penalty of sin, to free him from the power of sin. Um, and he's been redeemed through the blood of Christ, his death and received forgiveness of trespasses, sins. And again, this is according to the riches of his grace and has been lavished upon us. He's been blessed to know the purpose of this creation, which is that at a particular moment in time, all things will be united in Christ. We'll talk about that next week. It's just, well, it's thrilling. And then he speaks of the work of the Spirit that has brought all of this in Paul's life and our lives to reality as he seals all the work of Christ to us. And his very presence is the guarantee that all that is spoken of here, all that is said to be true, uh, will really come to fruition. It's really true. And so the end result of this, of course, is that he finds himself the recipient of all the blessings that come through Christ. And he knows that these blessings aren't native to him because all of us, remember as history is laid out in the scripture, all of us began in Adam and everything that was true of Adam, most especially through his sin, uh, is ours as well. He was our representative. He represented us when he sinned. The scripture says we all sinned when he sinned. Death came into the race. We understand that when he says the judgment came to us. We understand we're under judgment. When condemnation came to us, we understand because of Adam's sin. And even then our own subsequent to that, that we're under, if you will, the judgment and the condemnation of God. But in Christ, he comes and for all those in him is justification to be declared righteous and righteousness and forgiveness of sins as we have it here. And Paul talks about this in what I've been speaking of from Romans chapter 5 beginning with verse 12 but also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22 that in Adam all die in Christ all are made alive you see. And so Paul realizes that he that all believers are recipients of that grace 
And he realized, as Paul does, that he couldn't make himself alive, so it must have been God who made him alive. And so he gives all praise uh, to God, you see. Um, so I want, if God will help me to take up, though, this expression that in love, at the end of verse 4, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of the will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with which he has blessed us um, in the beloved. So what do we make of this? This this adoption. Well, the first thing we realize is that we're not naturally children of God and that not all are children of God. We use that expression rather loosely, culturally, that everyone's a child of God. And there's a sense in which we're all his offspring. That's what he says, Paul does, as he's speaking to the people in Athens. But, but, but his point isn't that we're all children of God in this intimate way. Because we, we know that we're not. For instance, Jesus has some rather direct words uh, to religious leaders in his day when he doesn't say at all that they're children of God. But rather, in, in John in chapter 8, he says to them, they say to Jesus that Abraham's our father. And Jesus says to them, if you're Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. Uh, but now you seek to kill me, that is to kill Jesus, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. Well, they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I, I, can, I came not of my own accord, but, but he sent me. And then later he simply says, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Clearly, not children of God. And when the Bible speaks of us as being children of God, it uses it in two different expressions that we understand it. One is an expression uh, of, a, of a spiritual rebirth. That's what John speaks of, for instance, in John in, in chapter 1 and verse 12. We have it like this. He says, um, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so there's, there's this way we speak about it, this spiritual birth, or, or as Jesus would speak of it in, in, in John chapter 3, we have it as he's talking to this man, Nicodemus. Now, you know this passage, I suspect. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, confused, said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Uh, it's this spiritual rebirth. It's this being born from above. It's, it's this new life in us by the spirit. Paul will talk about that in Ephesians 2 when we get there. Because he says that naturally speaking, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. And so there's this new life, you see, that's the spiritual life. And Jesus gives the illustration in John 3, we have it, about wind. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone 
He was born of the Spirit. In other words, we can't see the Holy Spirit, just like we can't see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. You know, we, one of the difficulties is driving through western Kansas is that you can't see the effects of the wind sometimes because there's nothing there to blow when the wind blows, you see. Well, certain times of the year there are, but other times of the year... Oh, we have the big windmills now. They're really helpful. You go, oh, look, the wind is blowing, right? Or so every once in a while, some brush will run across the road, and you go, the wind is blowing. But, but you see, when the Spirit moves, we know that he's moved. We can't see it. We can't see the movement of the Holy Spirit, but we can see the result of it, which is repentance and faith. And so that's the spiritual rebirth, you see. The Spirit has moved upon us. How do we know that? Well, we repent and believe. But, but there's another expression used, and it's the one that we have before us this morning, this, 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 this expression uh, of, of adoption. And it's, it's very important in, in the Scripture. We, we find it in a number of places. Um, fascinatingly, and I'll talk about this in a moment, uh, it's in epistles to the Romans, the Ephesians and to the Galatians and have some relation to Rome. So Paul no doubt has this notion of Roman adoption. But the, the significance of this adoption is, um, this is a book called Knowing God. Uh, the first 142 pages are still on my desk. Um, but um, I've used it a bit over the years. Um, but J.I. Packer writes about adoption like this. And it's important. He says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the holy creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole New Testament religion. If you describe it as the knowledge of God, as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. This sense of understanding God, you see, as, as our Father, so significant. I, I read here this, this passage, and earlier I read from Romans and, and, and chapter 8 about being adopted. Verse 15 of Romans 8, For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God and if children heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer him with him that we, uh, with him in order that we may also be glorified. And then Galatians in chapter 4, Paul writes this way. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date is set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, 
to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir uh, through God. Now, given the fact that Paul was either in Rome when he wrote about this or writing to the Romans when he wrote about this adoption, it's interesting because adoption, while it wasn't significant in the Old Testament among Israelites because of family structure, no doubt, it was very significant in ancient Rome. But it was different than adoption as we think of it. When we think of adoption, we think of taking an orphan child, a child who has no home, and blessing them, bringing them into our homes for their benefit that we receive as adoptive parents, benefits as well. But, but the point of it is it's, 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 it's for their benefit. And, and we'll see there's some of that here. But interestingly, in ancient Rome, it was quite different that an adopted person was adopted not for the adoptees benefits but for the benefit of the adopter and and the reason a person was adopted was because the adoptive father had no heir there was no one there to take over the family inheritance there was no one there to to prolong the family name and since sons could produce offspring to prolong the family name if you will then it were sons that were adopted. And sons could inherit, you see. And so if you had no son, you would adopt a male person as your heir. Which means that it could, wouldn't necessarily be an orphan. It could be, since it was always the eldest son that inherited, it could be the second or third or fourth son of another family. And they would see the value in their son being adopted into another family to be the heir, to carry on the family name. And so it would be a legal process and the name would be changed. The identity would be changed. The status of the person would be changed. They would leave their old family behind and enter this new family. They would leave, this man would leave his loyalty to his natural father and renounce that and and give his loyalty to his New father, and if anything were true in his old life, if he had debts or whatever, they would be paid and forgotten and left behind, and now he would come into this new family, this new relationship. One historian puts it like this. He says, the adopted person, first of all, lost all rights in his old family and gained the rights of a legitimate son in the new family. In the most binding legal way, he got a new father. Secondly, it followed that he became heir to the new father's estate. Even if other sons were afterwards born, it did not affect his rights. He was inalienably co-heir with them. In law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. For instance, all debts were canceled. He was regarded as a new person entering into a new life with which the past had nothing to do. And then finally... In the eyes of the law, he was absolutely the son of his new father. You can see the radical change in this person's life as an adopted son. 
And what's interesting, too, is that in, in those days, the, the eldest son inherited the bulk of the estate. So uh, let's say if you had a family and your uh, net worth of your family estate or what would be left would be about a million dollars just. But there were five kids. Well, then in our day, normally, give or take, depending on the family, every kid gets a fifth of that, $200,000. But, but you see, that, that rather dilutes the influence of the family or the family's name. And so in the days which Paul writes, the eldest son would get most of it, let's say 900,000 of the million. So the family's name would continue to be strong and he would have obligations to his siblings, but, but he would be the manager of the family's estate, if you will. And so the influence of that son, the influence of that adopted son, the influence of that family's name would not be diluted by being spread out among all the siblings, but would remain in that setting. So you, you can, I think your head's probably moving in the right direction here. How does this really apply to us in the sense of our own adoption into the uh, family of God? Well, we realize, I trust you remember this from reading the answer to uh, the Westminster Larger Catechisms number 74 that you read just minutes ago, that there's a new name, that we now receive a new name, that we now are children of God, that we are now belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus this new name, this new status, if you will, we are in fact uh, children of God. We once were, the scripture says, as Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day, children of Satan, or as he will say, chapter 2, children of wrath, now we're children of God. That's a big change, right? Uh, to think that through. How do we get there? Well, because of the work of Christ, because of God's work to move us and to give us the blessings of Christ, that we would be adopted into uh, his family. All our debts are paid, of course. Debt to sin. Uh, our former life now uh, changed. Um, this ransom paid in the um, prayer book, uh, book of common prayer. Uh, part of the prayer of confession is uh, spare thou those who confess their faults should be sins or trespasses. But that's the point. Spare thou those who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent. I would rather it be repentant, but same meaning. Restore thou those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all mankind through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you see, the promise that's declared to all is this. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The end of that section in First John is, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means he's the one who paid the debt. And since he paid the debt, there's no longer any case against us in heaven. It's been paid. There's no double jeopardy. It's already been taken care of. We've already been pardoned. And so even still now, when we confess our sins like we did this morning, we confess our sins based on the past work of Christ. Not anything that's presently being propitiated, but on the past work of Christ. That when he died, that made propitiation or satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. So that 
the case is gone. So we're always looking back. It's always through Christ. It's always by his blood, you see. And so that's this. Debts have been paid. And obviously, uh, there's been a great shift in loyalty from our old father, the father of lies, to our new father, who is uh, who is God. We see this in Romans in chapter 6, for instance. When you have opportunity, read the whole chapter, but I'll just read a few sections. In chapter 6, verse 1, Paul has just made uh, an expression of, of forgiveness and grace. And so then he asked the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he writes this, he says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, there's a change in loyalty. There was one time in our life when we lived to sin, but, but now he says, no, 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 no. Something's radically changed. You've been adopted. You've left your old father. And now you have a new father to whom you're to show this grateful, joyful loyalty. The new father, you see. So don't continue, he would put it, uh, in this sin. And then verse 20, he says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting out of at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, uh, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Our Lord, he says, you've left that life behind. In a very radical sense, you've died to it. And now live, you see, in this new loyalty to God. This is what you have been made for. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse uh, 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but... For him who for their sake died and was raised. So his point is, we have a completely different loyalty now. And it's now, you see, this loyalty of love to God. And then if we go back to Romans and chapter 8, from what I read, uh, you'll notice uh, this in verse 12. All right, so then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, I know we often take that verse when we're troubled and don't know what to do with our lives. So we said, well, I'm a child of God, therefore the Holy Spirit will lead me. And what we often mean by that, which is utterly wrong, but just not in the context of this passage, by the way, uh, is that we think that God will lead us to that right job, or he'll lead us to that right person to marry, or he will lead us to that right major, or um, he will lead us, because we're Americans, 
to which house to buy and which car to buy and all those kinds of things, right? We think that's how he's going to lead us. But the context of this passage is he will lead us to put sin to death. (laughs) And he'll lead us to live in holiness towards him. So when we have these big decisions, what is likely that the leading will happen is that he will lead us to put to death pride and fear and selfishness and impatience and all of that and lead us to put on love and humility and kindness and patience and goodness and joy and all of that. And then we'll make a decision out of that, which, which is a good place out of which to make a decision. And he'll lead us, you see. But, but the real leading, you see, the point is that as adopted children of God, you see, we have the Spirit of God to lead us. And when he leads us, what he's doing is leading us out of the old life, if you will, into the new life. That's why Paul will say in Ephesians 4, put off the old self and put on the, the new self. Why? With well, this this sense of adoption. You're different now. Get that in your head. Right? You have a new name. You have a new status. You have a new father. That's his point. This is what's taken place. This is the, the glory of it. If you if you will. And we have an inheritance to oversee. And, and this this inheritance is... The glory of God. It's eternal life. And what is that glory? Well, we'll be conformed to the image of his son. That's, that's, that's our inheritance. And also, we'll get to this next week. But also, we get the whole earth. The meek will inherit the earth. And will rule and reign through all eternity with Christ as everything's brought into harmony in him, you see. What a wonderful thing. But all of that we can kind of get from Roman adoption. But there's some real differences as well uh, that are glaring. And I think as, as Paul thinks about adoption from the Roman perspective, yes, there are some things which are consistent with that, which we'll understand about being heirs and, 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 and so forth. But, but there's some things by contrast that I'm sure Paul says, oh, this will ring in their, in their heads. For instance... That when we're adopted, it isn't because we're able to manage the things of God. (laughs) It isn't because we're worthy to do that. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, you'll be great in this role. That isn't it at all. He looks at us and we really are that orphan. We really are that down and out. We really are his enemies. We really don't deserve it at all. See, if I'm, if I'm a Roman dad, father, husband, and I have a family and I have no heir, and I begin to look to, for one to adopt, I, I, I go after somebody that I think is really going to do a good job at this and really can represent me well and all of that. So I'm going to try to adopt the best of the best if I possibly can. But that isn't amazingly what, what God does at all. He, he adopts the likes of you and me. And even as Paul would look at his own life, and, and that's, that's why I think he, he, well, he holds the theology that he does because it's true, but why it resonates so much with him is because he looks at his own life and he says, how did I get here? How did I get from one who hated Jesus? How did I get from one who wanted to kill everybody who loved Jesus? And now I love him and I'll give my life for him. 
How did I get there? How, what happened? And as he looks at that, he says, well, it must have been God. And so it makes perfect sense that, okay, before the foundation of the world, uh, God chose me to be holy and blameless in his sight. He, he chose me to receive the benefits of Christ. I wasn't seeking the benefits of Christ. How did they come to me? Well, only because of what God must have done. This is, And he predestined me to be his son, to be adopted. I don't deserve that. I wasn't managing the things of God very well at all. <laughs> but he adopted me and called me. And now I turn my back on all those things from my past. And he pays all my debts. And he gives me this new status and name. And, and now I'm loyal to him. He is my father. And he leads me to put to death all the things in my past and to live according to all the things now that are, that are to be true of me, to be holy and blameless in his sight. And he gives me this wonderful inheritance to conform me to the image of his, of his son, you see. So very different. Uh, you know, one of the verses, uh, you know this because I use it all the time. Uh, but Romans 5, 8. Uh, God demonstrates his own love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's astounding. What that means is if God had come to us and said, you're lost, I will give my son for you, we would have said, no, thank you. I don't need that. I'm fine as is. But he said, all right, I know you're against me, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> I'm going to give my son for you while you're still my enemies, while you're still in your sin, you see, while you still reject me. And that's the kind of love that God has for us that's uh, his sons. And we see this in Ephesians 1 at the end of verse 4. Um, it says, in love he predestined us for adoptions as sons. Now that little expression in love, for those of you who read commentaries and things like that, you'll realize it could go with what was before, that is uh, earlier in verse 4, or it can come what's after. And we know that it's the motivation of love that God has chosen us. We, we find in uh, Colossians in chapter 3, verse 12, for instance, that we've been chosen in the beloved, that is, we've been chosen because of the love of God. But here, because of sentence structure and context and all of that, it's almost always put with what's to follow. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. The motivation for God to adopt us is, is his love uh, for us, you see, astounding that it comes. And he's blessed us in the beloved. It's rather fascinating. You know, all throughout this passage, Paul writes, in him or in Christ. But in this one little expression, he says, he's blessed us in the beloved. He could have said he's blessed us in him or he's blessed us in Christ. But he says he's blessed us in the beloved. Now, why does he put it like that? I suspect because... Um, he wants us to know that this one who gave himself for us is one who's loved by the Father. Um, I suspect he wants us to know the cost. But there's something else as well. He's loved us in the beloved, and when he loves us in the beloved, he brings us into that sphere of being loved by God. In John chapter 17, you might remember, 
Jesus is praying this prayer, and we call it his high priestly prayer. He's praying uh, for those disciples, and he's praying for us as well. And at the very end, uh, he, he's, he, he prays, not just for those disciples of, that are there with him, but, but also for all who will believe uh, through them. And, and he, he prays um, in verse 23, or verse 24, he prays, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given to me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. The question is, where's Jesus that he wants us to be with him? Well, you could say, well, he's in glory and he certainly is and we certainly will be with him. But he's somewhere else as well because where he is is he's right smack dab in the middle of the love of his father. And he wants us to be there. Notice how he continues. Verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And you see, where Jesus wants us to be is right in that sphere of knowing that we're loved by God and and that's the fruit of adoption. That we're right there with him. And this is astounding. But he loves us as he loves his son. Because he loves us in his son. Think about that. So this whole election predestination thing isn't some kind of um, objective cold thing that God does. There's some expression deep within him of love that he's expressing love. And so when you believe in Jesus and thus you know you've been chosen by him and predestined for adoption, you also know this, that you've been loved by him. And now he is uh, the one who loves you and the very love of the father is in you. Um, Every Sunday morning when I come in at five o'clock, this is TMI, but I, I, I sing. It's, it's. Not pleasant, but I, I sing. And uh, I have a, a litany of songs that I go through. Uh, I, I, I sing Holy, 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 because that kind of, you know, sets it up for me. Uh, and then I, before I pray, I sing this, that old hymn, you know, I need thee every hour. I sing that. And then I pray. And then, then, then after I pray, I always sing, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain to him, uh, through him, to death pursue. Amazing love. And it just, every Sunday, it stops me in my tracks. It is amazing, you see. We must know that. And that's the fruit, if you will, uh, of adoption. And then we, we realize, too, that there's something about this adoption that's intimate. Um, um, I, I suspect in Roman adoption there was a certain sense of intimacy between this new adopted son and the father because the father would have to teach him and train him so he would know how to carry on his name and, and, and manage his estate and all those things. So there had to be some sort of training, but, but nothing like this intimacy that we have that we have with God, who is, in fact, our Father. In fact, Paul contrasts this 
with being a slave. He says, slaves are, they live in fear of their master. But there's something now about being a son that means we don't fear. Oh, there's this sense of the fear of the Lord as we understand it in the scripture, what it means. We live in awe of God and even perhaps quake before him, even as we think of his power and, and awesomeness and all of that. But still, there's something that's always drawing us to the Father, not moving us away from him. That's drawing us to him. And that's the sense of being a son. We don't have the, the fear of a slave. If a slave errs or makes a mistake or goes against the orders of his master, he's, in, he's afraid he'll be beaten or cast out or killed. We don't have that fear. That's amazing. That when we sin, well, we may have grief and disappointment and regret and all of that. That's, that's part of repentance. But, but there's this sense that he won't cast me out. He will forgive me. And I don't obey out of fear and that sense of being cast out. Like a slave obeys out of fear, being beaten. But I obey out of love. It's the love of God that compels me. That I no longer live for myself, but for him who gave himself for me. Second Corinthians 5, you see. It's, it's now that a whole different motivation. I, 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 I obey because he loves me. I love him. It's a whole new thing, you see. And we have access to him. Uh, that we pray. Romans 5 tells us. Uh, that we cry, Abba, Father. Abba, that's what Jesus cried in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a, it's a word of intimacy. It's a word of intimacy. And that I can cry out to him in every moment when I feel afraid, when I feel abandoned, when I don't know what to do, when I have nothing to offer, I cry out, Abba, Father. And he hears us, you see. It's that sense of, of intimacy when we... When we pray, his word has been given to us to instruct us. Aren't you taken aback every time you read through the Gospels and Jesus takes his disciples aside and he's spoken in parables and everybody's confused and he brings his disciples to himself and he says, to you has been given the knowledge of the kingdom of God. I mean, I just go... You know, that's us. He's, he's given that to us. The scripture says, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, that, that, that the things of, of God are, uh, can't be discerned by the natural man, but, but he's given us his spirit. Why? So that we can. That's just astounding. Do you realize that about you? That you've been given the spirit of God so that you can hear the things of God, the instruction of God, who he is and who we are and how we're to live. And it resonates with you, you understand it. You may not understand everything, but you, you know how it is. And we're to live. Why is that? Because you're smarter than everybody else? Because you're more righteous than everybody else? Well, if you are, it's only because of him. And you know these things because his spirit has been given to you. That you can know these things. And it shouldn't make us proud. It should humble us because we realize without the spirit of God, I wouldn't get it at all. I'd go in the opposite direction. I would think the opposite were true. 
But we have the Spirit of God. You see, that should thrill your soul. That's why Paul praises, because he, he realizes that all of this is true. And, of course, we have his wonderful fatherly discipline. Now, sometimes we think of discipline as being something that's, 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 that's harmful to us. And, and uh, God is very honest with us that it can be painful. We know the passage in Hebrews chapter 12. It can be painful. But, but think of it, and you know this as parents. This is the theory anyway. That the discipline of our children is good for them. We're doing that which is good for them because we, we know what's right and wrong. We know what's how best to live. And so we want to move them in that direction. And it's, it's, it's not love at all if we don't discipline. Love means I'll direct you in the right path, in the right way. And, and so God says, I'll do that for you because I'm the perfect father. And I know exactly what's best. And so take everything as training, as discipline, and it will produce joy, a harvest someday of righteousness. And we, we know, too, from Matthew in chapter 6, that we have his, his, his care for us. I don't have time, I don't think, oh, rats, I don't, to read this whole passage. But you know what I suspect from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus begins by saying, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, because look at the birds Aren't they cared for? Look at the flowers. Aren't they beautifully arrayed? He loves you more than that. So trust him. Seek his kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. He will, he will care for you. And then, of course, we have the assurance always that we're his. And we have this deep sense that we are part of a family. And Paul will flesh this out in chapters 2 and 3 and 4. That's who we are, really, you see. And we have this inheritance. So you see, as believers in Christ, we need to realize this, you see, that he really is our perfect, powerful, caring, loving, accessible, heavenly father. And I think Paul would say, if that doesn't thrill your soul, and you're not getting it. But he would say, if that throws your soul, then join me and say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We believe this is true. I trust and we know it. And so may you be praised. We give you thanks. We give you thanks that you... Uh, take care of us, and so we please uh, we pray on behalf of one another right now that you would care for us, that you would take those among us in difficult straits and difficult situations, and that includes us all in one way or another. That you would take care of us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would hear our prayers, that we can cry out to you, that all the fruits of our adoption and be manifested in our lives as we trust and depend and receive from you. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please.